0: Greetings. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we're here on our final week of the series Recentering. If you've been tracking with us over the past three weeks, we've been refocusing on what it is to be us as a church. Uh, What are our distinctives as the meeting house, as a a BIC, a a Be in Christ Church of Canada that has its roots deep in the Anabaptist tradition. And our first week, we had Carmen set us off in what it is to be Jesus-centered, what it is to, uh, how we're able to see life, how we engage with scripture, and how we move into our faith. And Jimmy last week uh, talked a little bit about our, our peace and nonviolent position and made the, the distinction between being a pacifist and being passive. That the, the two things aren't the same. That instead of us sitting as a, a people who are committed to nonviolence, sitting and waiting for the dust to settle, we're actually called to engage to move from places of comfort and into situations where conflict is. And uh, this morning, I'm gonna talk about being radically compassionate. And um, I, don't know, I, I toyed around on, on ways to approach this. I thought maybe what we can do, if we have 20, 25 minutes, we'll just keep taking offerings until we get to a certain level and just, and just prove the level of, of generosity and authenticity. Maybe you've been to a church like that before. I don't know if you've done that. I have. Yeah? we'll, we'll talk after, yeah. But yeah, but, but we are a, a church community that is known for our generosity, and that's something that one of the things that I'm, I'm if I can say it, I, I take pride in being a part of a church community that is so committed to generosity and compassion. Uh, Megan Enns, who's our compassion coordinator. I, I sent her an email a couple weeks ago and I said, listen, I'd love to know the things and initiatives that we've been a part of and supported just in the time of COVID. So in the past, I know we said, Is, how long has it been? Is COVID, are we finished with it? Is it still happening? We're not done. Okay, it's happening. So we're over two years now. And, and I asked uh, Megan, just give me, a, give me an idea of some of the things that we've been involved in. So since COVID, our church community has raised close to half a million dollars that's gone to organizations and initiatives to alleviate all kinds of suffering, both local and abroad, by supporting and providing global relief through Mennonite Central Committee and World Vision all over the planet, Ukraine, Cuba, Africa. We just have a a team, a small team that just came back from Honduras on Friday, just on the ground, looking at ways to empower and strengthen grassroots communities in in that country. But we're also partnering more locally and supporting things like, this is a long list and it's not exhaustive, providing safety for women working in the sex trade in Hamilton, a number of youth mentoring programs, summer day camps for kids in low-income neighborhoods, supporting of food banks, including infrastructure to help make them more effective, Support for refugee welcome centers in Ottawa, Toronto, and Waterloo, and equipping them to, be better, uh, to better welcome refugee claimants to Canada and support them with their claims process. Supporting programs to help equip young mothers in their parenting journey. Support of shelters, including one for women escaping domestic violence. And the list goes on. I think maybe I could spend the rest of my time talking about those things. There's also uh, food banks. Uh, support of food banks, community gardens. I know there are a number of uh, communities that have gathered around and sponsored families who are seeking refuge here in Canada. Food baskets, gift cards, and the list goes on and on. And just as important, and and Megan was clear to, to make this point, just as important as the money being given are the meaningful relationships that are formed with the people of our church and the people that benefit from these services. So when I hear the phrase, the church is to be an unstoppable force for good in the world, these are the kinds of things that I think of. The work that we do as a church community is significant. But being uh, Jesus-centered and the distinctives of nonviolence, peace-building and being committed to compassion and generosity are vital to us in the way that we follow Jesus. But they're also uh, countercultural. cultural they, they actually fly in the face of what our culture and our world deems as the most important things. And that's our personal safety and our security. That's not a bad thing. That's an understandable thing. That's a reasonable uh, goal and value to have, that I want to be secure and to be safe. But it actually is in opposition. It challenges these distinctives that we have of being peace-centered, pacifist, and committed to compassionate generosity. If we want our lives to center around Jesus, then safety and security may not be on the top list of our, uh, of our highest values. When we think of uh, a first century Jewish man with no fixed address, spent time hanging out with outcasts and misfits who encouraged rich people to sell everything they had, who bucked the status quo, who challenged all of the, the leadership structures that were in place, and was ultimately crucified for his actions and his words. To put that person in the center of our lives should not guarantee or make us think that we're guaranteed a life of safety and security. If safety is my highest priority, then I don't move towards violence. I don't move towards conflict. I move away. And if security and comfort is my goal in life, then my purpose is to amass wealth and to not lose anything that I already have. Because the kingdom of God, we talk about it, we sing about it, we pontificate and have meetings about it, this kingdom of God is rooted, it's rooted in self-sacrifice. We want to see the kingdom of God we look to where there is sacrifice happening, and it's there. Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-four. I'll read it again. No one can serve two masters; either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And. This passage, it strikes me as being a little odd because when you, when you talk about two masters, right? Two masters in competition, God and what's the thing that comes to mind immediately? God and God versus Satan, the devil, the, the enemy. That's, that's, that's in my mind where it goes, right? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God. You can't serve the devil. But Jesus here, who's teaching and talking about the importance of generosity puts money in that place as being another master to serve. And it reminds me of the passage, uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and, it, and it's very important, I don't know if you're like me, if you, if you have a couple dollars in your, in your wallet or your pocket, you, you make the distinction, it's not money that's evil, it's the love of money, right? You wanna make sure that people know that distinction. And I don't love money, right? We don't love it. Money's not bad, just if you love it too much. But but Jesus is making a point that his, his biggest rival in having a life that's centered around him, his biggest competition is our stuff. And that makes me pause, an uncomfortable pause, but it makes me pause. And I hope that it makes us, as a a community, as a collective, pause as well. Because if it's true, then at the very least, we need to be paying close attention to our affection. The things that we're drawn to, the things that we we dream about. Um, Maybe it's the thing that we're thinking about right now. Is it the ding-dong Amazon that should be at our door in the next few moments? I don't know. The scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Jack Forbes, who's an indigenous scholar, author, activist uh, for Native American studies in uh, California, he teaches about this idea called wetiko. It's, a, it's an evil spiritual being in the First Nations tradition. And wetiko translates into the word cannibal. But not that you would eat the flesh of another, but that you would eat the life of another. He puts it this way, that the wetiko is the consuming of another's life for their own private purpose or profit. When the settlers came, he teaches, the uh, First Nations people discerned very quickly that the Europeans were infected by this, this spirit, this mental illness is how they classified it, wetico. It's the kind of illness that forces you to take more than what is needed at the expense of others. We have so much to learn from our First Nations brothers and sisters. And I'm, I'm thankful that we had the opportunity on days like this to acknowledge them and to, to give honor and to give respect in the ways that we do. And I, I had the privilege a couple weeks ago to make a trip up to Timmins, uh, Ontario, which is uh, about seven or eight hours north of here. And, and there I got to go with our, my dear brother Samuel. And there we, we got to listen and hear the stories of so many First Nations people. We got to hear the, uh, and see the results of bad treaties, the effects of residential schools, and see firsthand some of the current living conditions. And there were so many things that stood out to me. But one of the things that I found really interesting, the thing that stood out to me, Uh, early on in my trip was this view or this concept of ownership in our first nations people that there is none there's no concept of of land ownership specifically and the idea of owning a piece of land would be no more foreign than owning the wind or the rays of the sunshine Access is a priority over ownership because we're in a place of abundance and there's enough to go around. The First Nation tradition says that there is more than enough and if everyone takes what they need, we will have enough. And to see the people and to watch the way that they persevered is an encouragement that regardless of how strong and aggressive any spirit of wetico or uh, aggressive push for conquest or of pow- the power of entitlement, that these forces aren't strong enough to overcome the power of gratitude and generosity. Any First Nations person that you see anywhere is a testimony to that, that they've been able to survive. And it touches the relationship that we have with our things, with our stuff, and when I say stuff, when I say money, I'm not just talking about, about the cash in our, in our pockets, but, but our time, our talent, and our treasure. These three things together, the, 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 the gifts that we've been given. And our relationship with this stuff is something that we should, we should be mindful of. And sometimes our materialism and our consumerism gets the best of us, and it's because I think we've believed uh, a truth, but also a lie about things. The truth is that some stuff, is good and will help us have a better life. Like if I'm uh, walking in the woods and I've just got a pair of shorts and a shirt on and it's getting cold and it's starting to rain and I haven't eaten and I'm I'm cold and shivering and hungry and I see a, a cabin with the smoke coming out of the chimney and I walk in and there's a warm blanket and there's some soup and maybe some bread that little bit of stuff has made a significant difference. That's the truth. A little bit of stuff makes a big difference. But the lie comes when I think that if I have twice as much of that stuff, then I should be twice as happy. Or if I have 10 times as much as that stuff, then I should be 10 times times as satisfied, that my life should be 10 times better. And without even knowing it, we kind of get into this idea that In order for me to have the best life possible, then I need to acquire and amass as much as I can. Based on the goal to acquire more in order to live the best life possible, but I wonder if believing that lie can be making us sick. Jack Forbes goes on to say and talk about the cure for this evil cannibalistic spirit. The antidote he says, is compassion. By recognizing that we are not disconnected, but that we are interconnected with one another. That I am because we are. That when we put aside our felt need, our felt highest priority for safety and security, and we engage with generosity and gratitude, we make sure that everybody has enough. That we can be cured. Hallelujah. Amen. Uh-huh. Maybe not. <laughs> the older I get, uh, and maybe you're experiencing that awkward feeling, the older I get, the, the, more, the more I have a, a challenge, the more I find it difficult to, to live a generous life. When I was younger, and there was less in my bank account, and I had no responsibilities, I wasn't a homeowner with kids and all of these things, and I, was at, I would be at the grocery store, and you just you just pray to God that your, that your debit card would go through. Does anybody know that? You pray, you pray a lot when you don't have any money. I found that it was so much easier for me to be generous and to have a thing when, when I had less. But if I am going to treat the things that I have as um, gifts from God or that I am... Put in, uh, put in charge of them as a caretaker or a manager, then am I able to hold them a little bit different? And it's difficult. It's hard. Once you get, it's easy when you don't have stuff. But when you start to acquire and, and amass things, it becomes much more difficult. But I'm reminded of the simple, my simple definition of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And that is in all areas of my life to move from unbelief to belief. To move from unbelief to belief in every area of my life. And that includes what I, what I do with my stuff, with my time, with my talent, and with my treasure. In Home Church, we'll be looking at some of uh, what we're about to get into next with the last few minutes that we have. And that's uh, three people. Uh, you can find them all in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 19 and Luke chapter 21. The rich young ruler, Zacchaeus the tax collector and the generous widow. So on the first story, the rich young ruler, you may be familiar with it. um, A wealthy and well-respected man comes to Jesus and asks the questions, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, he gives him the list. Don't murder, don't cheat on your wife, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud people and honor your parents it simple and the man looks and says well i've done all of these things okay jesus responds then and this is where he hits him in the heart right between the eyes i don't know what he hits him hits him where it counts he says sell everything to the poor and then follow me and the scripture says that he left sad because he was very wealthy and then Jesus continues the conversation with, with his disciples. Jesus tells his, his followers that it's very, very hard for a rich person to get into heaven, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. And then the disciples, with that response, they're confused as usual, like they're always confused, right? Every time Jesus is there, they're always like, well, I don't get it, Jesus explain. it, we don't know. It's like, so, so, can, so who can be saved then? Who, who can inherit the kingdom? Or another question that kind of gets left hanging is, can, can a rich person be saved? And that's the, that's the thing that's, that's left hanging. But a, f- a few verses later, as Jesus is walking and moving, he ends up answering that question and he meets uh, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is described as a little person who has great wealth, but he, he gained his wealth by being a tax collector. So he would be a not well-respected individual. It's funny, his name actually means righteous, but he would be far, very, very far from righteous. So he was a, a representative of all things negative, all things oppressive, all things awful with the Roman uh, occupation, and he would be benefiting from the, uh, from the oppression of his, his countrymen, of his fellow Jews. climbs a tree to get a better look at this man, Jesus, as Jesus is passing through because the crowds are so big. And Jesus sees him, acknowledges his curiosity and his effort and invites himself over for dinner. And I love that. Zacchaeus says, yes, absolutely come. Like how It's, it's incredible that he would do that. Zacchaeus recognizes immediately as the people around him get angry that Jesus has compassion towards this sinning tax collector. And Zacchaeus sits and he has a meal with Jesus and doesn't ask Jesus what he needs to do to inherit anything. He doesn't ask Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? But he's moved to action by the compassion that Jesus shows towards him when everyone else had been against him. Jesus invites him to a meal, Zacchaeus accepts. That's it, that's the interaction. And without being asked, Zacchaeus gives away half of his things and makes amends, including interest to all the people that he had shorted. And Jesus proclaims at that time that salvation had come to the house. And if you're thinking about the fairness and everything, right away your mind would go, wait a second, did he sell half of his stuff? Didn't Jesus just ask the other guy to sell all of it? That doesn't seem fair. What's going on? I'm keeping score. That ain't right. But Zacchaeus recognized his need in a very different way than the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was interested. His motivation was that of an inheritance. It was a spiritual inheritance, but he was looking, how do I make sure that I'm good? Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus that put his whole life and livelihood into the right perspective. He wasn't selling his belongings to get anything from Jesus. He wasn't doing it to receive a pass or a gift into heaven, but Zacchaeus was responding to the compassion that was shown to him by Jesus. And the result is to show compassion to others. As we talk about illness and sickness, the compassion actually can be contagious as well. That as you receive it, the instinct and the impetus is to now share it with others. The last story is found a couple chapters later. And we have the ultimate example of generosity in the widow's mite. That's in, uh, in Luke Chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 4. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus always has such an affection and a tenderness towards the poor, those disenfranchised, the little people. And this woman who does this act of kindness, this act of, of self sacrificing generosity, would be considered one of the little people, an insignificant nobody. She would be disadvantaged by. A number of things. Her being a woman, her being poor, her being uh, without a husband would put her with no religious, with no social, with no political status whatsoever. And Jesus decides to use her as an example. The kingdom of God is rooted in sacrifice. So when he says that she gave more, he's not talking about a dollar amount. Zacchaeus and his gesture. It's not about a, a, an amount, how much, how much, uh, how much was given, but instead how much it cost. The kingdom of God is rooted out of our sacrifice. I have to say, but the most important and impactful glimpses that I've seen of God's kingdom have, been, have come in places where uh, you would least expect it where we talk about um, not just writing a check and giving, but having a heart that is moving uh, towards downward mobility and spending time in proximity of people who know suffering and know pain. There's an opportunity to catch a glimpse of what the kingdom is like, where you see hospitality on a different level, where you see generosity and gratitude for simple things. Paul talks about... Jesus using the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to shame and confound the wise. The poor, the uneducated, the imprisoned, the sick and the dying, the ones that lack status of any kind have a gift for each of us on what it is to be engaged in the kingdom, to live with open hands and open hearts, and surrender with the things that we've been given, every bit of time, every bit of talent, every bit of treasure that we can say, it's all yours. So I, I imagine with what we've been able to accomplish as a community, what does it look like? What does it look like if each of us allow the transformation to happen of Jesus coming and saying, no, 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 I love you, show love to others. I'll close with, this. there's just one small little detail in the story of the rich young ruler that helps me so much. I love it. And it's, the story is, is um, captured in the three synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And only, only Mark has this little detail. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. They're basically, they're, so they're telling the same story, but just from different perspectives. And I love it. Uh, where is it? Uh, Mark chapter 10, 21. So right before Jesus is about to tell this man that he has to sell everything that he has, uh, Mark captures this subtle detail. Verse 21, Jesus looks at him and loved him. And I love that detail. It's not in the other ones. And I don't know, maybe it's because Mark spent so much time around Peter, and this was really important for Peter to get out to the to the people but it's just like in that moment before jesus is, a, is about to ask a really 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 hard thing he looks at him with compassion knows how hard it is and asks him anyway because he loves him because he recognized that this rich young ruler who appeared to be good and uh, was well respected and all of these things was still lacking that heart transformation It's not our guilt or our compulsion or a competition to do good things. But what is it if it becomes a natural or even better yet, maybe a supernatural response to the way that Jesus loves us? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of Uh, Hard things you say come, and I love you. And I thank you that you have been so generous towards us. I think all of us, or most of us, can say we are among the wealthiest people on planet Earth. What a gift that is, that we can both claim that and also proclaim that you are our Savior and Lord. What a gift to our world. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see uh, the things that we have, where we may be at risk of the things that we own, owning us, and be brave enough, be confident enough to know that we cannot outgive you and that you love us dearly. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.